everyone. Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd, and it's time for another edition of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast where we give you some of the best segments of the week on the Needle Drop and the Fantano channels. Of course, we are stacking up some reviews in this episode, the latest LP from Sludge Metal Outfit Baroness, talking about that, singer-songwriter Bill Callahan, Daniel Snaith, a.k.a. Daphne, a.k.a. Caribou, a.k.a. Manitoba, has come out with a new EP under the Daphne name that is pretty irresistible and groovy. Little Nas X, rapper, singer, songwriter, known for his mega viral hit, Old Town Road. His new 7 EP is out. I'm talking about it here. And also the debut album of very exciting and sort of unique math rock and noise rock outfit, Black Midi. Their new album, Schlagenheim, is out now via Rough Trade Records, and I have quite a few things to say about it. I'm also going to be talking about the latest single from Rich Bryan of 88 Rising fame, who does a pretty interesting stylistic switch up with his new song over here, Yellow, and also going to be talking about the new news to be hitting the industry at the moment, and that is the acquisition of Big Machine Records by talent manager Scooter Braun, who has a pretty rocky past with one Taylor Swift, and now through his acquisition of Big Machine Records, he owns her back catalog. We're going to be talking about that. We will also hit you with an exclusive segment from our popular Let's Argue series, and that is going to be the episode, everybody. So stick around, sit down, strap in. Here we go. Ba-bam. And it's time for a review of the new Baroness record, Golden Gray. The sludge and progressive metal outfit Baroness, they are back with a brand new album. Over the past decade or so, the Savannah, Georgia band has built up a pretty impressive discography. And for whatever reason, I feel like it was just a year ago that the band was dropping their record Purple, one of the band's catchiest and most triumphant albums yet. So because of how good and admirable everything Baroness has done up until this point is, anytime John Baisley and company announce a new record, it's cause for celebration. But I can't say I was really all in with this new one from the jump. I thought some of the teaser tracks for this album were some of the weakest Baroness had released in years, and it looked like this album was shaping up to be yet another double project from Baroness, which the last time they did that was in 2012 with Yellow and Green, and that's arguably the weakest project they've put out so far. In some ways, I do see Yellow and Green as a respectable transition point for Baroness, as a lot of the more accessible elements and characteristics to their sound on Purple were more or less road-tested on Yellow and Green. But those were not the only flaws on the record. Certainly there were others that could be boiled down to Baroness overextending themselves over the period of, of a very long project. For as progressive as some elements of Baroness's music are, they haven't exactly mastered the art of writing the lengthy, overblown rock album. And they seem even further away from that prospect with a lot of songs on this thing just being pretty direct, pretty straightforward, more tuneful, even some angstier vocals and lyrics. I would do anything to feel like I'm alive again. It's almost like the band at some points on this project are becoming the metal equivalent of uh, the Foo Fighters. Even the song Broken Halo sounds like what you would get if you took Baroness's sludgy, powerful, heavy sound and tried to pen some anthemic, super melodic power pop with it, a la Weezer. I'm not saying the result is good, 
I'm just saying that's kind of what it sounds like a combination of. But for the most part on Gold and Grey, Baroness aren't taking too many risks. Sure, there are a few weird time-wasting interludes that reinforce literally nothing else on the album, a couple more mild ballads than expected, a heavy psych rock closer, but many of the best tunes on this album could actually slip pretty seamlessly into the purple track list, frankly. I'm Already Gone, Tourniquet, Throw Me an Anchor, The Beautiful Cold-Blooded Angels. So there are definitely some quality highlights in terms of songwriting on Gold and Grey, no question, but most of this album's full potential is not lost in the lackluster pacing of the track list or some of the more mediocre songwriting on this thing. No, it's in how god-awful the production is. It, it truly is. And when I say the production, the mixing on this thing is bad, I mean it is bad. The only tolerable listens I had to this album were on just very small headphones or on laptop speakers. Because on everything else, on a stereo, in the car, it, it sounded like a total mess. And that's because it just sounds bricked the hell out. The vocals get buried in the bass. The guitars barely have any presence. You can only make out like half the drum set a good portion of the time. The mixes on the first two songs of this album made for some of the worst rock production I've heard all year. It's like the drums, the bass, the guitar, they're not organized or focused in a way where they're all reinforcing each other and empowering each other to unite and combine into this powerful and massive sound. No, it's it's kind of like everything is just canceling each other out and it's really blurry and lacking in definition. When the band tries to add extra little bits of sound and instrumentation, they just get totally lost in the haze and lost in the noise. It's like they, they might as well have just not even added it or recorded it. And even though listening to this thing on smaller, cheaper speakers did make for a slightly better experience, making out the finer details was still really difficult. I expected this to be a slight problem because it also was when Dave Can't Stop Compressing Fridman also produced Baroness's last album, Purple. In a way, it did complement how heavy and massive and thick and powerful Baroness's sound typically is. But with Gold and Grey, it's, it's way worse. The roaring guitar chords toward the end of the song Borderline just sound like white noise. They're clipping or just overblown. Meanwhile, the wall of sound on the last track of the record sounds like Fridman was just like, F this mix! And this problem is so egregious, it makes enjoying the finer writing and performances on here really difficult. Like, why should I only be able to enjoy this album on my MacBook speakers? It makes no sense. Meanwhile, on everything else, it sounds blown out and indiscernible. I'm just confused as to how this album was released with such major technical flaws laced into its sound, laced into the balance of instrumentation. I mean, I guess it's not Baroness's best crop of songs anyway so maybe it's a wash. But still, I think mixing and compressing this album properly without ruining how it sounds would have made a world of difference in terms of being able to enjoy it. As Baroness on this album has gone from being this heavy, visceral juggernaut of a band to just sounding artificially loud and muddy. I'm feeling a light to decent five on this one. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Bill Callahan record, Shepherd in a Sheepskin Vest. Singer-songwriter Bill Callahan. It's been a while. It's been a while, Bill. It was six years ago that I reviewed Bill Callahan's last record, Dream River, a beautiful contemplative set of indie folk songs with some very wonderful poetry mixed in. And it was about 10 years ago that Bill's solo work really started to turn heads. And even though I've said this before, it is worth mentioning again before all of that, 
Bill had forged a reputation as one of the most creative minds in slowcore and lo-fi under the name Smog. Through the 90s and aughts, Smog came out with some pretty incredible records and underwent a pretty stark evolution too. Take the 1993 Smog album Julius Caesar, for example. The noisy production, the freaky folk influences, the dejected mood on this thing. It's like Beck's early work except legit experimental and half of the tracks don't feel like they're just taking the piss. Compare that to the far mellower and more coherent sounds Smog was dabbling in just a decade later and it's like listening to two totally different bands. The material Smog was coming out with in the 2000s saw the project transition into these more Americana-influenced sounds, which allowed Bill to transition into the musical state that he's in the midst of today. So even though it's been years since the release of Dream River, I still very much see Bill kicking around the same creative stomping grounds with his latest effort, too. Though Bill's songwriting methodology on this one has undergone some serious Innovations. Mostly gone are the long, winding, abstract folk meditations of Apocalypse and Dream River. Instead, with Shepard, Bill cuts down the runtime of each track here, for the most part, to about two minutes and change. And this isn't really a brief amount of time for most rappers and pop stars and, and rock bands for a single or even a deep cut, but Bill's songs don't exactly hurry to their destination. It's sort of like shooting the breeze for very short amounts of time over this long, strung track list of musical vignettes. And even though the overall feel of the record is relaxed, it is laid back, there are some strange and funny instrumental embellishments that I wouldn't have expected on a Bill Callahan record given just how serene and pristine and spacious and open his last couple of projects were. So the instrumentation this time around, it does have a slightly raw presentation in a way it's like a soft return to the lo-fi days of smog. Emphasis on soft return. In comparison with Apocalypse, the production, the instrumentation here isn't nearly as pristine, and, and purposefully so. The lyrics this time around do see a change of pace too. Bill's writing is a lot more frank, humorous, off the cuff. Occasionally he goes incredibly meta, like on the song Writing, where he is literally writing about writing and how good it feels to be writing again. As it would seem, he did take a somewhat lengthy break from that. On the track Ballad of the Hulk, we have Bill basically narrating the intro of his own song. Well, after this next song, we'll be moving along out of this vein. It's called Ballad of the Hulk. Quite a few tracks on this thing not only see Bill going autobiographical, but doing so with very literal terms. Going on about his domestic life, his wife, his house renovations, his new son. The lyrical tone on the song Son of the Sea is very slice of life very apparent. I got married to my wife. She's lovely. And I had a son. Other personal moments on this project are complemented with more flowery language, like on the track 747, where we hear Bill's very sleepy baritone delivering poetry about flying in a plane. Or the track Watch Me Get Married, where Bill, getting married, and having kids manifests itself into a weird fantasy where all of these children are coming out of his chest, like subsequent generations of a family tree or something. It's, it's, it's still an odd picture. The flow of this album, honestly, is, is not too much unlike the front cover that is pictured here. Bill laying back, stone-faced, like he's in the middle of some kind of vision. Meanwhile, a miniature shepherd with a sheep in his shirt, huh? Is that, is that a sheep in his shirt? 
Is that a sheep in his shirt? He's marching these little pink sheep into his head. Maybe each sheep is a theme or a song idea or, or a track on this thing. And the sheep, just like these songs, they're hanging there, they're chilling, they're getting led around, they're grazing, they're in no hurry to go absolutely anywhere. Like on the song Tugboats and Tumbleweeds, where Bill literally imparts some advice uh, onto the listener, saying, hey, you know, chill, chill out, relax. Don't rush through your, your youth, I guess. Take a tumbleweed year or two where, where, where you, you don't have a care in the world. Which is a nice thought, it's a nice idea, I guess, though I will say that, that Bill's advice sometimes is a luxury that not everyone can afford. Generally, the attitude of this thing is very mellow, it's very sweet, it's very intoxicating, though not always beneficial to the album. It does lead to a feeling a little one-dimensional at points. While none of the more understated and underwhelming tracks in the track listing here are all that bad while they're on, as the album draws on and we get toward the end, uh, the fact that they're kind of padding this album out to be longer than it needs to be becomes very apparent. I will say it's not like Bill pushes it too far on this record, though. He's not giving listeners a big ask on this one, uh, given that it's it's really just an hour of music and not a lot of the tracks on this thing last so long that they overstay their welcome. On top of that, it's not like this diary-like songwriting style is unprecedented at this point. Uh, that's that's basically been Mark Kozilek's M.O. for the past several years. I just wish more songs on this record offered bolder statements and more defined, colorful, and memorable instrumentation. The ratio of great to forgettable songs on this thing could certainly be better. I should still mention some of the gorgeous, moving highlights on this album, though. You have the gospel-inspired Lonesome Valley, which is just wonderful. I also love the cute thumb pianos on the track Call Me Anything and Bill's poetry about Riding a bike on this cut just feels like a blissful dream within a larger blissful dream. The lo-fi eerie tape recording on the first track of this thing is a really great way to kick the entire album off. And the track What Comes After Certainty, this sees Bill wisely waxing poetic on true love. True love is less a magical feeling and more a feeling of constance and certainty in your life as you have forged a long-term bond with the, your significant other and, and you can depend on that person to be there and, and, and be this recurring uh, supportive force in, 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 in your existence. Though there is a weird detour on this track where Bill talks about signing Willie Nelson's guitar when he wasn't looking. Pretty messed up, if you ask me, Bill. I'm not exactly sure what, what plane of existence this was happening on in his song, but it's, it's still a very odd moment <laughs> on the record. The track The Beast is as good a finale as I think you're going to get on an album like this. The instrumentation reaches a somewhat intense drone. There's also a very sinister intro on this track depicting a smoky battlefield. The lyrics deeper into the track are a weird mix of, of, of dark, but also lovesick. Uh, more lyrics turn up recurring themes that popped up earlier on the record, like uh, the sea and sailors. After this whole thing is over, it feels like I've just experienced this very large, multi-phased, only partially decipherable dream. I'm not entirely sure if Bill's very low-key songwriting and singing style on this thing is is complemented by uh, the, the brief song lengths and, and basic song structures. It doesn't always click, but a majority of the songs on this thing are enjoyable, are quality, are sweet to the ear. Definitely one of the more creative, solid, and I suppose entrancing singer-songwriter records I've heard in 2019. I'm feeling a light to decent 
seven on this thing. Transition into the next review. <laughs> and it's time for a review of the new Daphne EP, Sizzlin'. It's sizzling. This is a brand new batch of tracks in an EP format from Canadian electronic music producer Daniel Snaith. He has been dropping music for years now under various monikers, Caribou, Manitoba, Daphne is just one of them. It's also slightly underutilized as well, in my opinion. He's only dropped two full lengths under the Daphne name at this point, and as far as I can tell, he mostly uses this project to create more purest expressions of techno and house. In a way, it began as a name for Daniel to be able to DJ under, and now it's basically an avenue for him to switch into whenever he wants to veer away from the indie appeals that he's typically known for under Caribou. And the Sizzling EP certainly sees Daniel doing that. This thing is a batch of four tracks, plus a radio edit of the opener, the title track. And the songs here are a weird, funky blend of new disco and techno. It's also packed with creatively looped and manipulated samples of dance music from a bygone era. It's nostalgic, it's groovy, but with a few weird ideas thrown in just to add a bit of extra character. Because it can be a shame when producers in this genre rely a little bit too heavily on the source material they're working with, and as a result it just ends up feeling like a varied remix of the original track. I think that is slightly the case with the title track sizzling on this project, which features Paradise and Paradise Paradise just so happens to be the Bermudan band that Snaith is sampling to make this track. Still, this thing is a new disco banger for new disco banger's sake. It has these quick, peppy kick drums that are driving this array of slap bass and vintage horn hits. Some hand drums, and of course vocal samples thrown in here and there for some extra color. Snaith builds this track up really nicely, but around 2.10 in the track, that's when the kick drums, the added percussion Snaith is bringing into the mix pops in, and the song just goes. The song If, in my view, is just as exciting, but for a totally different list of reasons. The track features these sour jazz piano samples, rigid techno beats, and a few percussive phrases that feel like they're lifted out of an old-school hip-house single. This track is all over the place stylistically. It's taking a little bit of something from a variety of places, and yet it somehow works. Sure, it's kind of messy, but there is certainly a method to Snaith's madness on this one. Especially when he pops in these sassy instrumental breaks where he'll throw in one of these weird, funny piano phrases almost as if he's making a joke. The song Romeo heads down the new disco route once again, but with these girdling, phased out, descending bass tones. At the start, it sounds like the beginnings to some obscure, strange, synth-punk project, but once the drums get more beefed up and the lavish string hits that play throughout the track reveal themselves, the disco influences make themselves very apparent. It's like they've been waiting this whole time to just kind of jump out from behind a cape and go, aha, I'm here, here's a disco influence, ah! This track is essentially another endless groove fest. It's an interesting mix of both lively and robotic. And the last cut on the record, Just, is very similar to the intro in, yes, of course, it's it's another new disco rager, but it's, it's very heavy on the samples. But I'm not as crazy about how Daniel chopped up and employed those samples on this particular track. To my ears, the main theme feels far too short, far too repetitive. It makes the track feel very stale, very fast, losing its flavor far before the ending of the song, which I think happens a minute or so into the second half. And sure, there are some changes, some transitions, 
a groove switch on the track, but these moments to my ears are too few and far between. Given this track is on the longer side at six minutes, these moments really should have been more plentiful. Still, I do think this song is a quality moment on the EP. The grooves do feel pretty nice, and I love the way Snaith treats the sounds on this record. All the melty layers of vocals and bass and percussion just feel really blissful. They're like a, a funky hurricane. All that being said, though, Sizzlin', I do think it is a good, fun, quality EP. I love the disco influences, love the house influences, love the techno influences. They all coalesce very nicely. The material on this thing, in my view, is much fresher than a lot of what Snaith put out on his last full-length album under the Daphne name, and hopefully he just continues dropping fun, groovy, smile-inducing dance music like what he's drawn up here. Or do something else entirely different, I guess. All I know is that I'm really enjoying this. I'm feeling a light to decent eight on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Lil Nas X EP, Seven, the Seven EP, it's Seven. This is the debut commercial EP from one of the biggest musical sensations of the past year or so. That is Lil Nas X. If you told me 10 years ago that one of the biggest musical sensations of the decade would be from a dude who basically wrote like a, a novelty country rap song that was legitimately a banger. I would ask you how you got my number and tell you to leave me alone. I'm, I'm calling the police. Have I, have I made that joke before? I might have made that joke before. But still, that is exactly what has happened in the dimension that we're currently living in. So a track this viral that has wormed its way into the minds of not only adults, but, but also little, little children, Fortnite dancing to it, it leads to one question. Will this dude essentially just be a one-hit wonder? I think at this point there's most likely too much industry push behind Lil Nas X for him to go without not even one single more popular track. I mean, they're going to give him some producers, they're going to give him some collaborators that are going to drive people to what he's doing regardless. The dude has just dropped a new song with Cardi B. But still, will Nas evolve into an artist that has a shelf life beyond this one track? I think this new EP begins to answer that question. For one, you have the Old Town Road and Old Town Road Billy Ray Cyrus remix bookending this project. Not sure if there's really anything I can say about these two songs that I haven't said already, that hundreds of other people haven't said already. Most likely at this point you've heard the song and you know whether or not you like it. It's a very smooth and even combination of trap and country, with the lyrics being delivered with a subtly comedic tone and, and being somewhat inspired by the video game Red Dead Redemption 2. Most importantly though, all of this is attached to a ridiculously catchy chorus. The track is something that feels new, but beyond the surface, it is really just a sharp rendition of something we have heard again and again and again. And if there's any formula to win the public over, it's, it's, it's that. Give them what you know they want to hear, but present it in a way where they think they're hearing something different. As far as the other tracks on this EP go, though, they're really a mix. You have tracks on this thing such as Panini, which are not country in any way, shape, or form. Very modern, very contemporary hip-hop, some Travis Scott-isms, some Drake-isms, with the combination of these blissful pop melodies and somewhat trippy trap production. It's a straightforward but somewhat low-key banger about audience members or people in Nas's personal life that don't 
really want to see him succeed and, and change because of the success that he's seeing in his, you know, musical endeavors. It's kind of derivative, but at the core of it, there is a really solid tune. The song Kick It comes from a similar stylistic place, but offers way more atmosphere and space. The instrumental also features these very weird sax embellishments that bring a lot of color to the cut. Even more surprising are the string harmonies that pop in during the very last leg of the song. Just, just did not see that coming, and they're kind of elegant. The substance of the song overall, essentially, I don't know, just kind of hanging out, selling weed. Yeah, I wish that part of it was a bit more memorable or substantive, but still, I don't mind it. So these tracks on the EP basically serve the function of showing that Nas X can write a contemporary hip-hop song just like anybody else. Other moments on this EP, though, show Nas continuing to fuse elements of hip-hop with different genres, not just country. The songs Family and Bring You Down, both of which see Nas trying to, yeah, basically pull off a rock song. The former feels like an inadvertently awkward take on something the Strokes might do with a kind of peppy driving drum beat and uh, very sharp staccato guitar chords. Instrumentally, I do think it could be a lot tighter, though the tune is, is very sweet. I think the hook is pretty quality, too, even though the aesthetics and the delivery of Little Nas's music does, does very much make me feel like his style, his sound, his everything, in many respects, is in and incubator stage, he is still showing it at this very early point a serious knack for writing some very melodic and very sticky hooks. The song Bring You Down is almost like what Kid Cudi was trying to do on Speeding Bullet to Heaven. It's it's really pulling a lot of ideas from the grunge playbook. It's got a mid-paced tempo, a very moody lead vocal, of course a wall of guitar distortion on the chorus that tones down a lot to uh, some very crunchy trebly thin guitars on the verses. This track does not just smell like teen spirit, it, it reeks of teen spirit. And again, it's catchy, but having Nas X hop on top of a grunge instrumental isn't exactly putting a new spin on anything, especially since the lyrics just seem like so non-specifically oriented around drama or maybe revenge or just dislike of a certain person, either wanting to call this person out or take them down physically, I'm not entirely sure. The track Rodeo is really the only other song on this EP with a noticeable country influence and I, I wouldn't even say that's the most predominant style on the cut. The watery guitars all over the song feel like they are lifted once again out of the grunge playbook. A few of the pluckier guitar leads on the track sound more like surf rock, like they're doing a Dick Dale type of thing. And then the trap drums and vocal effects and somewhat psychedelic production once again feel very Travis Scott inspired. Regardless, the track does feature a slick hook and a mystical vibe, a somewhat funny southern twang to Nas X's verses. Cardi B also makes an appearance on this song. I think it's a kind of average appearance for her. Not too bad not mind-blowing. I wouldn't say it makes the song, but it doesn't derail it either. I don't mind it. Finally, the track closure offers listeners one more surprise here, seeing Nas X fuse elements of hip-hop, house, even UK Garage. This track to my ears feels like it could have slipped pretty nicely into the debut disclosure record without much people batting an eye at it. The driving beat, sweet vocals, and moody piano loops all over the song feel very much inspired by that project. So once again, Nas X veers left into something totally unexpected, but he shows that hey, he can he can kind of pull this off too. I guess even though Nas X didn't present anything entirely new on this project, I did come away liking a majority of the songs and was pretty impressed by his versatility. So I would say in the end, I liked this thing. It's pretty cool. It's not mind-blowing, but 
pretty much everything on this project shows an incredible amount of promise. Hopefully now that Little Nas X has shown he can do more than a couple things and write more than a couple songs, he will just kind of move on to the next phase of his career and, and do bigger and do better things. I'm feeling a light to decent six on this one. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new black MIDI album, Schlagenheim. This is the debut full-length album of Rough Trade Signees, UK-based rock outfit, Black MIDI. Named after a dense, computer-crashing form of electronic music composition that is usually packed with thousands, if not millions, of notes, the band Black MIDI does, doesn't really sound like like what they've named themselves after, at least aesthetically anyway. I guess in a conceptual sense, they are both similarly freakish and disorienting, but I think that's where the parallels start and end. I first heard Black Midi earlier this year, around in February, when I stumbled across somehow their uh, Speedway single on YouTube, which is a much rougher version than the song the band presents here on this new album. Even though the performance and the recording on this early version of the song wasn't picture perfect, you could say that most of the elements that make Black Midi what they are now were pretty much in place, as the band was still delivering eerie, mathematical noise rock with an emphasis on strange grooves and even stranger vocal performances. I do want to say though, even though Black Midi is pretty weird, I mean, they've, they've gotten odd sound, a lot of what they're doing in my view isn't entirely unprecedented. Personally, I hear quite a bit of crossover between them and contemporaries that tend to favor funkier, more outlandish music, favor experimental rock, noise rock, math rock, post-punk, early music from Alt-J, Aught, Parquet Courts, Preoccupations in Women. There are some moments where the guitar tones remind me of something off of a television record. So to me, even though Black Midi has quite a few familiar qualities, they have definitely hit upon a uniquely unsettling, dark, and a bizarre sound. Take the blistering multi-phased intro to this thing, 953. which features these odd quickly cycling grooves that are broken up with shots of noise and guitar feedback. And it says a lot that the band can suddenly transition from this into a pretty beautiful acoustic guitar passage with very theatrical lead vocals. Onward, we get more instrumental buildups, instrumental freakouts featuring melting guitars and falling pianos. The whole thing devolves into a punked out riff fest toward the very end and just becomes absolutely demented. Miraculously, in this one track, in this one moment, in the intro, the band successfully balances all of these sounds and emotions and intensity and, and volume levels in a way that just is is very cohesive. Then we have the song Speedway. The groove on this one inhabits a place where it, it is very visceral. I really feel it. I really want to move to it, but there is something that feels just inhuman about it, and subtly sinister as well. In a way, the track's odd lyrical focus on building codes and urban structures kind of reminds me of something out of a Talking Heads song. It's like maybe the band is trying to make some kind of statement about the sterility of 
urban living or conformity or uh, the rat race and hustle and bustle of city life. Or maybe it's a rigid sonic depiction of rigid architectural structures. Either way, it's intriguing, and I absolutely love the instrumental swell toward the end of the track. By comparison, the next track, Reggae, is a lot more wild out of control, lively as well, there is absolutely nothing reserved about this song. Not only the contorting guitar licks, but also the xylophone on this track. What sounds like xylophone is just <laughs> so over the top. The singing on this one feels less like singing and more like a uh, very tense and dramatic rant. It's like, once again, I'm listening to the band Ought, but with a much more manic lead singer and zanier instrumental backdrop. Or maybe it's like a math rock band attempting to soundtrack a horror film. We then have the even noisier near Detroit, Michigan, where the incredibly hard-hitting jagged riffs that kick that track off give way pretty quickly to these somber musical passages. It's very murky, it's very atmospheric, and the reason the instrumentation is scaled back on this part is because I think the band really wants the listener to focus on the lyrics as they present a very on-the-nose description of the various water crises going on in the Great Lakes state right now. There is a totally insane finish on this track where you're essentially met with these scream vocals of there's light in the water, there's light in the water. Undeniably a powerful and maybe the most nightmarish moment on the entire record. I think the song Western, at least in the first leg, is this album's first genuine attempt at trying to do a ballad. The guitar and melody kicking the track off feels like something out of an Americana tune, but given that it is black midi, of course it's not going to stay in this tuneful and mellow place. Sonically, I would say it progresses into a pretty surreal place with a lot of lyrics. I think trying to give the listener a, an abstract depiction of a protagonist essentially cutting off a toxic relationship or connection to someone by, I don't know, leaving them in a ditch. Lyrically, the whole thing gets more and more unhinged as it progresses with the verses feeling like they're right out of a fever dream. A pink caterpillar with six anorexic children let me stay, but I had to keep moving through Anteater Town. After Anteater Town, after Anteater Town, after Anteater Town, after Anteater Town. It's, uh, definitely twisted. The mutant rhythms and noise and distortion on the track of Schlagenheim feels like something out of the 80s no-wave scene, but of course that only accounts for some portions of this track. All the other passages surrounding these moments just move through this indescribable winding progression. I'm looking at a list of things I picked up on this track, and I know it's all real, I know it happened, but it's, it's still odd to think that there were passages on this thing that felt like they were out of a jazz fusion or a prog track, and then there was this groove toward the end of the song that felt like it was out of an 80s boogie banger. If you threw a sweet synth lick on this portion, it might feel like a synth funk song. Of course, with a weird, twisted backdrop to it, but still. The song BM, BM, BM is maybe the most grotesque moment on the entire record. It features all these weird horror movie screams going on in the background with just a uh, manic ranting on top. She moves with a purpose. What a magnificent purpose. Purpose. It's easily one of the least tuneful and most repetitive moments on the entire record, as well as one of the simplest structurally, and yet it's like one of the most impactful moments on the entire album. The central idea to this song is, is so 
freaky and just how far they push it uh, is, is certainly awe-inspiring. The band goes full spazzy noise rock on the track Years Ago, which is another refreshing moment on the album, I guess. And the finishing track, Ductor, is a somewhat satisfying closer, though I don't think the band really does anything on this track that they hadn't already presented in some way, shape, or form earlier on the album. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the most uh, grand moment of finality that that I've heard on a rock record this year. I will say to throw a few nitpicks in there, occasionally the production to my ears does feel a little claustrophobic, like the riffs and the uh, bass and the drums, everything could just use a bit more space. Some of the musical detours that the band embarks on in these winding detour-heavy tracks sometimes feel like non-sequiturs or they derail the momentum of a particular song, but I guess the the band always loops back into something interesting. So even if they do transition into a somewhat underwhelming moment, it doesn't last long. The vocals occasionally, I think, could use a bit more direction. Sure, I do like the uh, lack of inhibitions on the vocal front of this record. It does lead to this album having a lot of character, feeling a little freaky and a little out there. But their disheveled nature and lack of direction occasionally can be a little frustrating and standoffish, not to mention they can feel obnoxious during moments where they're a bit overacted. Overall, though, I think this album is a great listen. I love it. I'm incredibly impressed with the band's creativity and cohesion and, and just how bold their sounds and ideas are right out of the gate. So not only is Black Midi sounding incredibly good right now, but uh, I don't know, I feel like w with a band that is coming through with ideas this bold and out there and, uh, and songs this compelling, the sky could be the limit. And that's maybe the most exciting thing about Black Midi at this point. I'm feeling a decent too strong eight on this one. It's track reviews. And it is time for a track review. We have a new song from uh, none other than Rich Brian of the 88 Rising Camp. Before we get into the track review, I do want to mention very quickly that I have a live date coming up, a couple anyway, on the East Coast, Cambridge, Massachusetts at the Sinclair, Brooklyn, New York at Rough Trade, and Hamden, Connecticut at the Space tickets down below. I will see you guys there. You're the best. You're the best. You're the best. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a good time. Memes, music, counterchesta, talks. We do a live Let's Argue as well. So if, if you have some hot takes and you want to throw them in my face in person, we can do it there. All right. So again, Rich Brian, he is back. Rapper, songwriter, Mr. Rich Brian new single out. And from what I understand, before even listening to this track, I guess he's embarking on a slightly different sound this time around. So I don't know. Let's give it a try. Let's give it a shot. Rich Brian, Yellow, ba-bam. Okay, Rich Brian, Yellow. Um... Yeah, very surprised that he <laughs> went in this direction. Uh, what what could I even say this is? I mean, there are elements of hip-hop in here. There are elements of R&B in here. There are elements of very grand, lavishly arranged vocal pop. The, the instrumental presentation here is on the level of grandiosity of like a great high-budget 
Anderson Pack song or like a Kendrick two pimp a butterfly cut. Like it's it's very heavily arranged and the strings and the bass and all the live, all the organic instrumentation uh, melds very nicely with the beat, the synthetic beat, the sequenced beat on this thing. Um, while I wasn't necessarily like blown away by Rich Brian as a singer, and he was singing on, on a great majority of this track, while I wasn't blown away by him as a singer, he, he didn't strike me as the most original voice out there in this field right now, the singing was still very good. Like it was, it was very expressive. It was heartfelt. He had great range Uh, for somebody whose rap delivery is typically so flat and even and measured. I didn't anticipate the dude's singing voice to be so, I guess, animated. The song is multi-phased and there's a different, slightly different instrumental palette or progression that comes along with each phase that really justifies the five minute runtime of this thing beautifully. It's rare that you have an artist who's predominantly known as a rapper who is dropping like these massively arranged five minute singles. Um, Typically, you know, things seem to be moving in, in the opposite direction. Let's come out with the shortest song possible to maximize streams and, and hit fans over the head with the most simplistic sound idea and message that we possibly can. Uh, but the emotions in the narrative of this track are complicated. The instrumentation is large and intricate and the song is uh, beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's captivating, but I wouldn't necessarily call it catchy. It's not instantaneous and that's not a bad thing. It's just not a super hooky track. You know, it's a slow burner. It takes a while for it to, to really grow on you. Um, I think this track is moving. I think it's beautiful. I think it sounds great. How it will perform as a single, I'm not entirely sure. I think there are probably a lot of fans out there that um, will be able to put this on and be surprised by the change in direction and also surprised at how well it's done. It's done incredibly well. This is a great transition. But is this a song that I uh, foresee being played in a lot of parties or slipped into a lot of large Spotify playlists. Uh, no, it's, it's not really, it's not really that vibe. I'm sure the, the days of Rich Brian producing singles like that are not over, but, uh, this track is certainly, I think, going to cause a stir among his fan base, among the 88 rising fan base. And, um, I don't know, just continues to show his, his versatility. I mean, I've known up until this point that he's been behind the the scenes sort of flexing his muscles, uh, as a songwriter, you know, within the 88 rising camp, he's not just simply a rapper. Um, and it's interesting to sort of hear that talent manifest itself in his, his own work, his own talent for writing tunes and writing ballads. It's, it's pouring out here and I think it's doing so beautifully. I think it's a kind of translating really well. So I like this one. I thought it was really good. Again, surprised and a little floored at at how uh, uh, gorgeous and well put together it, it really is. And I'm going to be talking about one of the biggest stories popping off in the music industry at the moment. And that is the purchase of Taylor Swift's catalog via the purchase of her former label, Big Machine Records, by one Mr. Scooter Braun, who is an entertainment manager, who I I guess Taylor Swift has a pretty storied past with, that she 
goes into a little bit on this Tumblr post that we will link you to down below. You can essentially see the linkages between her, Kanye, Scooter, the whole situation and uh, falling out and the phone call recording with Kim Kardashian because, of course, the situation that she cannot stop reflecting on extends itself into uh, this current drama that she's going through at the moment. So as a result of this story that Taylor Swift has poured her heart out about on social media here, uh, there has been this prevailing hashtag, Stand With Taylor, and there's been this outpouring of sympathy and concern for Taylor as a result of all of this. And I, I guess I'll let you guys know here from what I'm reading, do, do I stand with Taylor? Am I concerned with this situation? On the baseline aspects, the more industry-oriented aspects of this story here, not really. And the reason why is... I can't really feel uniquely bad for Taylor's situation because it's truly not unique. The types of rights ownership that we're talking about here that Taylor has with her label in regards to her music in that she doesn't own the rights, she doesn't own the masters of her music, yeah, that's that's pretty much standard. That is what happens in most music contracts, especially in the major label side of the industry. Uh, what's different with Taylor Swift, though, is that uh, uh, she has come out on the other end of it a multimillionaire. Uh, do I sympathize with the whole situation with Taylor not owning her music? Of course I do, in a sense, and, and I will get into that later. Uh, but, I mean, again, on the more boilerplate aspects of the situation, in terms of, oh, I don't own my music, uh, the label owns my music, so on and so forth, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much the way things go. However, uh, where a majority of my sympathies lie in regards to the situation is that it does kind of suck. And you can read about this in detail to an extent in this post over here. It does suck that Taylor Swift wasn't really offered the opportunity to buy her masters back from her label. And I could understand maybe why that wouldn't have been offered because it seems like her former label head just wanted to get rid of the whole thing. And there's no way no way the label would have sold for the $300 million price tag that Scooter Braun paid if Taylor Swift's discography was not a part of the whole kit and caboodle. And again, that is the extent to which my sympathies sort of lie here because it does suck to be incredibly successful as an artist and not really own the rights to your success. And there have been some very notable struggles and, again, successes over the course of popular music history in terms of artists owning and buying back the rights to their music. And from what I'm reading about her past with this Scooter Braun individual, this guy may in fact, and, and I'm not kidding here, this guy may in fact be buying this label to get in her craw, you know? Given a uh, recent history between both of them, given the Kanye connection, and he went on to social media to sort of uh, echo and boost a post where a friend of his had sort of like bragged about him buying Taylor Swift and uh, and he shared it. Again, I, I will say I do sympathize and I do uh, stand with Taylor insofar as I do think she should be given the opportunity to buy her masters back. And I would love it if we lived in a world where uh, we had some kind of rules or regulations in terms of how labels 
interacted with artists and signed them on because a great deal of, of record labels, frankly, uh, from my experience and from my reading and just being in the industry in the surface level way that I've been, a great deal of what artists are subjected to in terms of contractual obligations can be pretty predatory. That element of the story I think is truly terrible. It only gets worse once you throw Scooter Braun into the mix, considering the negative experiences that she's had with him. And I get there are people out there who have some very strong and negative opinions on Taylor Swift. I've made videos where I have expressed the same, but still that doesn't take away from the fact that this is particularly shady, manipulative, and even demoralizing uh, for not just Taylor, but for any artist who could potentially be put in a situation like this. So I think I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Shout out to Jonah for assembling this episode as fantastically as he does every episode. Make sure to follow us over on social media at the Needle Drop on Twitter, A Fantano on Instagram, theneedledrop.com also has every other piece of content that we make throughout the week that you might want to check out. Don't miss a single video on the Needle Drop channel on the Fantano channel as well. And we will see you guys in the next episode. Make sure to subscribe and rate and comment on whatever platform you happen to be listening to this podcast on if you are enjoying it. And thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much. Anthony Fantano, Needle Drop Podcast, forever. <laughs>